the court appoints us to see if we can save the business with a better outcome for the creditors firstly and then the shareholders of the company. Hello and welcome to the Gross Profit Podcast. I am your host, James Kennedy, CEO at ProcurementExpress.com, where we help hundreds of companies to safely spend billions of dollars each year. And on this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Lucas Swart, Director of Swart & Associates, a firm that specializes in business rescue. But Lucas has a wide-ranging entrepreneurial career covering everything from setting up hospices to uh, selling biltong to Irish rugby players. And finally, his current project, uh, a bull to wildlife. So I thought we'd start off with the business rescue, but then also get a sense for what it's like to have uh, such a wide-ranging entrepreneurial career. Um, pretty impressive. So Lucas, you're very welcome to the podcast. Hi, James. Thank you very much. Nice to nice to be on your show. So, so tell me, what was your background, Lucas? Um, where did you start off in your business life? Um, yeah, James, I was uh, I was born and, and raised in South Africa, did all my schooling here. Then I did a um, four-year financial degree um, in South Africa um, in the mid-80s. And from there on, you know, I've always just been in business, you know, been involved in business, accounting. We had a, we set up a, a accounting practice in, um, in a, in a town called Nelspreit. To people that knows the Kruger National Park will know it well. And, um, you know, that is still to there to this day. And yeah, from there on, it was just all business. And, um, in 2001, we, myself and my family decide to, we will, uh, we would like to have a stint outside South Africa and we moved to Ireland and, um, we arrived, we moved, we lived in Ireland from 2001 to 2017 and yeah even while in Ireland I um, most of my time was spent in the finance industry in practice and then also you know a few a few uh, national and international companies that I worked for um, business development manager and um, yeah you know setting up systems and um, setting up businesses and you know trying to get maximize the business set up and get out of it the most as possible for the for the owners of the businesses. That's interesting. And and the difference between being in practice as an accountant and being in industry, what would you say is the, the pros and cons of each? I must say, James, I'm fortunate to have been on both sides of the table. Um, you know, accountants would, some accountants would agree with me, you know, um, personally, I found auditing and things like that, um, you know, a bit monotonous and not for me, but, um, you know, thankful there are, there are people that really enjoys it. And, you know, there are good auditors that like those kind of things again. And for me, like I said, I'm, I'm unhappy that I got to got an end at both sides of the table, being in practice and being out in industry. I do think my personal view on it is that you have to go through the practice thing. You, you know, you need to spend your time. You need to do your, your time in a practice where, you know, where you get a base, uh, where, you, where you get a, a, a good uh, knowledge of what's happening. You know, most businesses, the basics are the same. You know, the business might be a different industry, but the basics remain the same. And um, I just think, you know, I would never, I would never regret my time in practice. And um, you know, going to going from South Africa to Ireland, that was um, uh, that was uh, that was a bit of a, a culture shock. Um, I must say that the the systems, uh, especially that from a tax point of view, in Ireland was much more stringent. It was operated better, um, if I can summarize it, if I can generalize. You know, the, the systems that work in, in, in Ireland, in South Africa, it was a very broad system, um, whereas in Ireland, it was very focused. You know, if I can use a, an example, if, a, if an Irish uh, auditor would come into your company to audit, 
they would come in and they would do the VAT, they would do the PAYE, they would do the corporation tax, everything. You know, they would, you know, yourself, they would camp themselves for a week or two and uh, they are clever people, you know, they know what they do. In South Africa, they more tend to, you know, specialize. Well, there would be VAT inspectors, there would be corporation tax inspectors and so on. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I also got to, got to uh, understand the system in Ireland. I must say, you know, the, uh, from a company law, company law, um, it wasn't that different. Um, you know, a lot of the things were the same, but from tax, yeah, the tax was very different. Um, the tax setup was completely different. And, um, yeah, I did a, I did a good few years. I did about four years in practice. And, um, yeah, then outside that, you know, but I must say, you know, I do prefer out in industry. I think I've got a very wide knowledge of, um, industry and, um, setting up companies and, for me, it's a bigger challenge to to set up a company and to help a company that's in trouble than to move into a senior position of a company that's already doing well. For me personally, the I, I do better if I go into the companies that struggle. Yeah, I often think it must be fascinating to be in practice seeing all of these businesses. I'm sure some doing better than others. And then as a basis to kind of get you when you do go out, if you decide to go by yourself, into business, you get to learn from their mistakes firsthand, not read about it in a book. But I guess there must have been some businesses you worked on in practice that inspired you and some that terrified you. And you thought, mm, okay, when I go, I'm going to do this and I'm not going to do that. Yeah, you know, certainly you learn a lot, you know. I mean, you go in there and you, uh, like you say, there's, I mean, you get to deal with businesses that's been for 20 years, you know, two generations. And, um, you know, those are things that you don't um, don't learn in a book. And, uh, you know, you get to meet people, you know, you, you get to see people going through various cycles. You know, um, I mean, technology has taken us, I think, much quicker through the last few cycles, uh, the way that technology has uh, has approved, improved. So, um, yes, you know, there was definitely, there was some things that I've learned in my time in practice, very valuable, um, that certainly helped me when, when I went into industry. And, um, yeah, for sure. Okay, so that's interesting. So uh, I guess then you, you're currently, if we can just jump forward to what you're doing at the moment, which is business rescue, which I guess are companies that have, you know, gone or gone. It's too late for them. Is it too late by the time? Because this concept of business rescue doesn't exist, as I understand it, in many jurisdictions, but it does in South Africa. Is that right? James, yeah, I, you know, I think it's an amazing piece of law. You know, when I came back from Ireland in 2017, I, you know, I had to do what I what I do, and uh, but I didn't want to go back into practice or anything like that. So I came across that the business rescue that was introduced into South Africa in 2011, and I looked at it a bit, and um, you know, it did really look good. And I, I had to, I had to do a bit of um, law studies because it's very law orientated for about six months, and then I had to write some exams, and then you become then the you, you the court. Um, you get a license to act as a business rescue practitioner. And then also, you know, you get a junior, you get an intermediate, and then you get a senior practitioner. And why that is valid is that you, you know, there's only certain sizes of business that I can do on my own as a junior business rescue practitioner. But after three years, I can apply to become a intermediate or a um, senior practitioner. So yeah, you know, it's, um, it's, it's a very interesting piece of law. It is basically you know, they, they set it up to help companies. Let's say it would be your step before liquidation. Before companies go into liquidation, they can apply to go into business rescue. But, you know, I'm sure the idea that comes up in the guys' minds are, yes, you know, this is a great way just to sidestep your creditors and the bank and the taxman and so on. But there's some very stringent laws 
there's two reasons that you can go into business rescue. There must be two things. First of all, you must be financially distressed, which is not that difficult because most of the people are, you know, if you can't pay your bills for, for six months or if you foresee that you cannot pay it within the next six months, that gets classified as being um, financially distressed. And then the next very important one is that there must be a good chance that the business can be rescued. You know, so what we do is, you know, um, we, we are a group of about 10 guys that work together. And I'm very fortunate to work with some guys that's been in the industry for a while, you know, consisting of lawyers, that's uh, business rescue practitioners and accountants. And we've, you know, we've set up a system whereby if somebody applies for business rescue, we would go in and, um, you know, if we have the financial information at hand, like financial statements and so on, we, uh, last two years, we would quickly assess, you know, um, if, a, if that business can be rescued, you know, because, um, that's the first hurdle. And, uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot of instances I can, I can, you know, I can use an example of the one that we've done is one of the, it was a very healthy business. It, uh, you know, there are 12 outlets in South Africa, a toy store. And the director, he just went on a rampage. And in December 2018, you know, he just, he took a lot of money from the business. And, uh, yeah, you know, the business. And then the, so the directors, the other directors and shareholders put it into business rescue. So, you know, we must, um, first of all, you know, we don't, we don't take a case on if we don't think the business can be rescued. So then the way the law works, you can go into business rescue in two ways. Either the directors file to the court for a, uh, they take a resolution and a director's meeting, or the court can place them into business rescue. And like the example I've used just now, this is where there was foul play in the company and the directors asked the court. So go through court and the court makes a court order um, that this business must go into business rescue. So, yeah, then the second thing is, you know, then a business rescue practitioner must be uh, appointed. And there's also some rules, you know, um, you cannot be, as the accountant or the lawyer, you cannot be the, also the business rescue practitioner. Um, you know, if people have an objection of you as a practitioner, then, um, you know, the, the court can remove you. And we actually get appointed by the court. It's a court order and only the court can remove us again. You know, so the very interesting thing about this is that we are not working for the owners of the business. We are working for the creditors. Mm -hmm. The court appoints us, you know, to see if we can save the business with a better outcome for the creditors, firstly, and then the shareholders of the company. And, um, yeah, you know, so then the process, we are, we are very, there's very strict timelines to this. You know, within the time that the that the business rescue practitioner must be appointed, after the business rescue practitioner uh, is appointed, we have a uh, we have a certain amount of d days in which which we must call the first creditors meeting. And you know, normally in your first creditors meeting, that's when you you know obviously you get all the you invite all the creditors. You have to get all of them there. And you know, it's not only creditors, also related parties, which include your relevant parties. Sorry which include your employees, and if they are affiliated to a union, the union can be there and so on. Oh, you know, and then you, you try and tell these people and you say to them, listen, we've looked at the business. Normally, you can imagine people arrive, they're very upset because um, as soon as you file for business rescue, then all uh, legal proceedings get put on hold. If you are busy with the process of summoning somebody, you are looking for your money, and the moment those people go into business rescue, all those get put on hold. You know, so you have your first creditors meeting and uh, you explain to the creditors, listen, we think that this, this is what we, we make a summary. This is what went wrong in the business. Um, this is why we think we can save the business. And then we have a, then we have a, a time limit as to we, we have to produce a business rescue plan. So, you know, this is a very thorough document. This is a very detailed document. Um, 
where we go in and we do our analysis of what went wrong, how we will fix it. Um, you know, we normally do a comparison and to say to people, listen, in business rescue, if we rescue, if we, if you accept our plan, then uh, you might get as creditors, you might get 40 cents out of the rand or 20 cents. But if it goes into liquidation, you know, this is how much you will get and out of the rand as a dividend. And also the important thing is with, with business rescue, you know, you obviously your secured creditors, which, you know, which where you have signed surety, they get first priority. And then after that, um, you know, your, your, your receiver of revenue and your unsecured creditors, they stand in the line as everybody else. Whereas normally in a liquidation, you know, the taxman would come first. And, um, so, you know, it's a, it, it's a, it's a very good progress, a process. You know, if you, I mean, we've been successful in a few rescues. A lot of it is, you know, it's about saving the jobs and, um, they, you know, we, we try and not to keep a business in business rescue, let's say for more than a year, if possible. So when you're doing your plan, is that the major tool you have is the fact that you're able to go to the creditors, creditors and effectively negotiate a big discount on what's owed? And is that the, the biggest tool you have? Or do you have to actually go hands-on, act as a managing director, or do you just direct the, the existing staff? How does that work? No, you know, the, the, um, there's a big difference in, in the business turnaround and business rescue. With business turnaround, you know, you basically go in like you were explaining now, that listen, you just go and you try and negotiate with creditors and so on. Whereas with business rescue, you know, we uh, we have the law behind us. Uh, like I said to you, no, nobody can take action. But, you know, we also, we have to put a decent plan on the table because very important, when we produce, when we uh, introduce our business uh, rescue plan, we must get a vote of 75% at least um, of people accepting our business plan. And that 75% is not normally, it's not by the amount of creditors, but it's the amount that of the creditor. Right. So even if the other 25%, you know, um, does not agree, they have to fall in with it. You know, I mean, it, and that's where it works. That's where it helps to work with people that is trusted in the industry. Like, for instance, the banks and the taxmen, um, you know, they know that let's, if, if this certain group of guys take it on, let's, let's listen to them, let's give them a chance, you know. And then what we... And obviously, you can imagine that one of the big issues is always capital. You know, where's the money going to come from? Hmm. You know, so we need to be ready with that also. And we need to, uh, you know, we need to approach people. We need to speak to the owners of the business. And we need to say to them, listen, this is how deep your well is that you are in. Let's say we need about 10 million rand. And with 10 million rand, we can offer the creditors 10 or 20 cents out of the rand. We can get you back up, uh, up doing business again. And... Um, we can pay the creditors that and we can get you out of business rescue so you can continue. You know, so that and, and obviously you can imagine that the banks, you know, the banks will not give you money uh, because you're under business rescue. And according to our law, also, if somebody gives you money when you're in trouble like that, it is reckless lending. You know, if the banks, a lot of times the banks uh, do help us, they would say, OK, listen, we will extend this credit or we'll do this. But, you know, against very strong measures as to how we perform. And in most cases, we do get um, investors because, you know, I mean, uh, if there's a good business out there that need a capital input and you can obtain 51% of the shares for a good amount of money. And also, you know, you will take the chance. And the, and the other good thing about it, any finance that comes in after business rescue started is post-commencement finance. And that is also payable back first. Whatever happens in the company, those guys must get their money back first. We as business rescue practitioners must see that post-commission finance gets settled first. Okay. 
the investors or did the business itself pay? I mean, you're you're obviously paid for this effort. So is that paid out of from the investors or whatever's left in the business itself as part of the plan? You know, the um, the law also stipulates the, the 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 amount that we are allowed to charge and also the maximum amount of hours. You know, so there is rates for small, medium, and um, and large businesses. So and yeah, our fees as a business rescue practitioner, our fees also gets priority. We get paid first, right? You know, we have a general rule. We won't take our money out if the staff don't get paid and so on, you know. So, but the protection is there. Interesting. And then what's the, so obviously there's reputational risk when you go into business rescue. It'd be hard to work with those creditors again. But does the, in the case there of the business owner that just took too much money out of the business, does he get all scot-free or what after the thing is put back on his feet? What's the repercussion for him? You know, um, we are obliged to look into the business and in any irregular irregularities we have to report and we have to act on. You know, if there's any um, if there's any allegations, if anybody, any creditor comes to us and says, Listen, I know that um, that director has taken money out of the business six months ago and he bought a, a nice villa in Spain, we have to investigate that. And if it's true, we have to give it over to the to the authorities. We have to, anything that comes up like that, we have to investigate it as part of our job, you know, to look into it and then to, to act on it. And uh, if there's wrongdoing, uh, we, you know, we've got the power to remove directors because we, we actually take over the whole company. We take over the company, we take over the finances, uh, we take over the bank account. Uh, we have the authority to appoint um, specialists. If, let's say, if I go into a business that does mining, uh, you know, we have the authority to appoint mining engineers or consultants. Um, and I must say to you, you know, a lot of times it is not easy if a guy has been in his own business for 15 or 20 years and, uh, you know, we step in, it is not easy for those guys to give over everything to us. For sure. I mean, you haven't picked the most stress-free free occupation to come back into. I can imagine there's a lot of uh, heightened tensions. It must be quite emotional trying to come in. And then I suppose you have to win over Everyone, the creditors, the staff, and no, no one's really actually probably happy to see you, maybe the majority of creditors, but it's quite skillful to be able to get everyone on board. Are people thankful? You know, uh, James, when it started out in 2011, I mean, I wasn't here, so you know, but you know, it didn't go very well. Uh, with all due respect, it was mostly run by lawyers. And, you know, again, with all due respect to my colleagues, the lawyers, they don't know how to run businesses. They know how to close them. You know, so for a, for a while, you know, um, there was a lot of, there was a bad connotation to business rescue. And it, you know, eventually it started turning and more and more accountants get involved, you know, where you try and trade the business out. You know, you do what you have to do to trade the business out of the problems that they are in. And, um, you know, so yes, you know, I mean, there's still, uh, uh, there's still some negative connotation to it, but, you know, at least as time has grown now, there is a lot of successes to be shown. You know, where, where business rescues were uh, were successful. I mean, the creditors, you know, I mean, uh, what's the next option? If you go into liquidation, you will get nothing. And that's not what we play it off against. You know, we would like to keep the business in operation. We would like to keep the people their jobs. And, um, you know, we, we try and, and, and deal with the cards, uh, play with the cards that we've been dealt with. It's interesting. So, I mean, the investors are an interesting animal here. Are there people who are actually looking out for these, looking out for the court orders? and specializing in investment in these rescues? Because I guess it's pretty risky. I mean, it, is it 50-50 chance that it comes out of it? But it, there must be a good bit of upside if something has proven to have made money in the past. There must be a chance can be turned around and then you could have a quite a good investment. I, I presume the valuations for those investments as well 
would be pretty depressed? Or how do you value something that's, you know, basically dying? In a lot of cases, um, James, if you can now imagine, you know, if 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 um, if you have a business and the business is actually, you know, you, the business has is, is got a good few assets and the business is doing well, but you're sitting with this big burden of a tax bill uh, that hasn't been paid and, you know, all taxes that hasn't been paid, a business that's uh, hugely overstaffed, maybe uh, run badly. I mean, if you have an, if you have a good opportunity to trim that business down, you can make a good business out of it. And, um, you know, that's where uh, Business Rescue gives us a very good tool to restructure businesses. The way the law is written, um, you know, obviously we cannot act um, wild, you know, but um, we can. We do have the opportunity to restructure the business under the under Business Rescue, whereas we can, um, you know, we can let people go. We can reduce director salaries. We can get rid of some of the uh, – we can get rid of assets that's not performing. So, yes, you know, it's it's tough. We – you know, I try, we, you know, we always work more than one person on, on one case because you can imagine how you get sucked into this, how you get, how you become part of this business. Um, you know, like you mentioned earlier, you have people on your backs, the creditors don't like you. I mean, we've got a good rapport with the banks uh, because all the banks, you know, they've got a, they would have a business rescue division. Mm. Um, so once, you know, you, you have your local bank manager, which is sitting on the guys, you must pay your loans, you must do your, you know, service your overdraft. But as, you know, when the business rescue comes, listen, it's happened, and it moves on to a next um, uh, next department, and then we start negotiating again, and we show them, you know, listen, if you guys, this is our business plan. Our business plan says that if we put five million into the business, we don't repay any loans for a year. After month thirteen, we can start paying you again. Um, you know, in month twenty four, we would uh, we would try and settle you. You know, I mean, your your account. Um, you know, I mean, so they do listen. They sure. You know, if you, and again, it, 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 it's up to your reputation. If you if you lie to the creditors, if you treat them badly, if you don't do your job, you might get away with it once. But, um, you know, you're going to run to those same, same creditors again with your next business rescue. And they're going to then say, stand up and say, listen, remember this one, you lied to us or you promised us this. And, you know, and, and with the best will in the world, things still do go wrong, you know, because we are we are dealing under, under difficult circumstances. But, um it's it's a good tool, you know, and I really like the system. I really like it. And I think there is scope to help a lot of people with it. Well, it sounds like there's a, I mean, it sounds like if I go into business rescue, there's a chance I end up, oh, sure, my creditors get paid off, but I could come out of it not even owning my business. I mean, could you say, okay, I'm going to sell 51% of this business to an investor and that's what's needed and the original owners just have to go along with that? Yeah. If, if um, because remember what I said to you that, um, we, the court appoints us and we work for the creditors. We don't work for the business owner. So, and that, and that does bring a lot of, um, issues with, you know, the, um, because the guys, you know, obviously you're trying to help them. You know, I cannot go into a business and if I don't have the, if I don't have the assistance of the owners or the people that's got the skills of, of management and so on, you know, my, my chances of, of doing a successful rescue is not, is not easy. It's not good. So we, 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 we try and work with the owners. You know, we, that's our first option. Is to sit with them, and you know, but they must they must understand our um, our role in the company. Right. Yeah. Does that does lead to um, to you know some friction a lot of times, but eventually you know you do get around and people see the benefit in it. So from some business rescue to animal rescue, as if your life wasn't stressful enough by the sounds of it. <laughs> You've also, uh, it's just a, a parallel venture you've got going, which is Ubuntu Wildlife. So tell me, what, what is Ubuntu Wildlife? 
Yeah, you know, friends of mine always tell me, they say, you know, you go from people that want to kill you to things that want to eat you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I always believed in my life that you have to put something back into the community where you where you make your money. You know, I, I, in Ireland, I used to belong to a few charities and uh, did my, you know, put my hours in there to assist. And then when we came to South Africa, I always had in mind that I would maybe do it a bit differently, you know, with, with our, you know, with our lovely um, nature and uh, and um, our wildlife, I thought, you know, I would like to get involved with um, with that, with rescues and just with animal welfare. And then I met up with a, a friend of mine. Um, you know, we were in school together. We knew each other since we were like 14. And, um, you know, he had, a, he already had a, a sanctuary where they take in uh, animals, big cats, uh, predators that has been treated badly or that's been in zoos or uh, circuses and um you know, but um, he, you know, he had this vision of of, of putting up a, a sanctuary. You know, everybody always wants to see these animals. You take them and you must let them roam free. It's not always possible. You know, you cannot take a lion out of a circus or a zoo and put him in a in a two thousand hectare place and and everybody feels happy. So we wanted to set the standard for listen, and you must accept animals will be and have to be in captivity at some stage, and we want to set the standard for that. We, we want to show, you know, the rest of the world how, how to do it in the right way. So, you know, it started out as an idea in 2018 um, on a farm in a northwest uh, province uh, close to Botswana. And then we, we rescued our first animal from, um, you know, they were breeding animals for, 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 the, for hunting. And uh, we had, there was this male animal that they just thought that he's done his time and, you know, they wanted to... Um, they want to get rid of him. And uh, we said, listen, no, let's rather, you know, we would like to take him in. So we've taken him in. And after that, you know, we, we've rescued a few animals. We've got four animals, five lions from the Ukraine. We have, at the moment, we have three from uh, Argentina. We have two tigers from Argentina. So at the moment, we have 13 li- uh, 12 lions and two tigers that we that we uh, are looking after. And... Um, yeah, you know, the COVID has stopped it a bit because we, you know, there's there's quite a few rescues. We've got um, quite a few rescues waiting in France and Argentina. And um, yeah, we, uh, we're going to, we, we got a, in, in the meanwhile, we've got ourselves a bigger piece of land, 1,650 hectares. So, you know, that will allow us to take more animals, to, take, to bring in more animals. So, yeah, that's what I'm busy with. And, um, you know, I must honestly say, I didn't expect it to turn as big as it is. You know, I was um, just, in the beginning, I thought I was just helping out a friend to set up a non-profit organization, a charity. But I tell you, you know, once you rescue that first animal and you see them, you know, having their freedom and, um, you know, some of the animals that we got from Argentina, those animals were born in captivity. They've never walked on grass or soil or anything. They've, they've always just had cement under their feet. And, um, you know, to bring those animals in, to see them roaming, uh, you know, to go into bigger camps, enclosures. I've never in my life experienced something as rewarding as that. Well, I can't imagine what it's like to be a lion that's brought to live, live in Ukraine, of all places. And I guess in a zoo. It's mostly zoos that you're rescuing them from, or it could be a mix, I guess. You know, the interesting thing about these lions from the Ukraine, you know, people get little lion cubs and pubs, and so a lot of the countries, the laws are not so strict. You know, they're awfully cute when they are small. You know, but after a year when, uh, or a few months when that gets big, you know, it becomes very playful and playful meaning, you know, your furniture and um, they're not those they're not those nice little kittens anymore that you got them as. So, you know, that's when people start treating them very badly. And, uh, you know, they get put in small enclosures, they get tied up, you know, they get tied up, they get sold. And, um, 
you know, those were like the Ukraine lines was like that. Um, yes, you know, the, the ones in the zoos, there's a tendency across the world, you know, people, I mean, a zoo is still fine, but circuses, there's, we are getting a lot of um, interest from uh, animals that's in circuses that they want to to move back to Africa. You know, we're working with a few big groups across um, across the Europe to, you know, they want to bring animals back, especially animals that come from South Africa, they want to bring back to South Africa. Yeah, and I guess you can't just book them an economy-class seat on South African airways and strap them in. It must be incredibly expensive to bring them down and specialised, I guess. Can they go in a regular cargo hold or what's the, how do you actually specialise transport or how does that work? You know, Jim, I mean, the, you know, the, the, um, the, 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 the big work even starts before that because we had to get what they, what they call a CITES export permit to, for the country that wants to send them. Then, uh, you know, from the country that they come from, then we have to get an import permit. And they are extremely strict on these things. You know, there's a lot of red tape, a lot of bureaucracy. You know, a whole process uh, can take us six to eight months in, 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 you know, let's say when there's no, not even COVID, when all government departments are, are functioning. You know, so um, it's, it's, it's a huge, huge process. There's a lot of effort that goes into a rescue. We are about to bring in four tigers now from these were guys that had a circus pass through this town and they left the tigers there in, in coaches like a, like a train coach. Um, and they've been there now since 2017. You know, they are feeding them on donations and on people's generosity. But yeah, we are working with a group in France. Uh, it looks like uh, we will, you know, with a local carrier, we might get lucky. But you look at about $25,000 per ticket, you know, for the whole process, to follow the whole process. And, um, you know, mostly we, we have brought um, uh, uh, predators through with, with what they call mixed, which there is, uh, um, you know, it's, it's uh, passengers and cargo, and but mostly, you know, it's with cargo. Wow, that's uh, amazing. So uh, what's your, I mean, you know, 25,000 just before you get them there, then you have to feed them. And I know, as I understand lions, the problem is not because the lion is keeping giving them enough food. You need other animals for them. Do they they hunt or they fed dry food or how do lions kept fed, put it that way? You know, the feeding um, is one thing, James, but also, you know, a lot of those animals arrive here compromised, you know, so our veterinary bills are also very high, fairly high, I must say. you know, they a lot of them like, if, for instance, the uh, the young cubs, they would have not um, they would have not got milk from the mother, so you know they would have had a vitamin A deficiency, which later leads to problems with the um, with the with the hips and so on. You know, so they normally um, I would say eighty percent of them that arrives here, you know, uh, is compromised, and we have to our veterinary bills are fairly high to get them proper, you know, put them on a proper diet vitamins and what whatever they need to get them right again so how do you find how do you go with funding something like this it's quite a challenge right it must be you know sounds like millions of dollars a year could get to at some stage so how do you go about funding the whole operation you know we are very fortunate um uh, james that we've built up a very good um, international following especially you can imagine from the countries where we've rescued the animals you know and um, then also you know we work on a system where we have um, volunteers that come to the sanctuary. And with that, we have a, um, a company that we work with, uh, Salesforce. I think you guys would be familiar with Salesforce. Like, for instance, what Salesforce have, um, Salesforce have in their, in their company as a policy, they've got a system called VTO, Volunteer Time Off. So each um, uh, Salesforce employee get one week for VTO time that they can, that, that doesn't, um, you know, that's not part of their normal leave as long as they do charity work. 
And, um, you know, we've managed to uh, been very successful um, with our program, implementing it with them. And, you know, and uh, the company also, so if the, the people pay uh, the people pay to come over to, you know, they, they do some voluntary work for us and the company then matches whatever the employee gives, they matches 100%. Intro. Yeah, you know, so it's a very interesting concept. I mean, it's an amazing thing to work with. You know, it's, it's really, um, I mean, the people, you know, we had quite a few people from Ireland. There's two Salesforce offices in Dublin. We've had a lot of people from Dublin coming over. And, um, but, you know, from all over the world, from America, from France, from the Netherlands, from Germany, you know, that uh, because it's, it's, it's uh, into the program, it's international. Yeah, you know, that's how we, we manage. We are we're very fortunate to fund it like that. But you can imagine since March last year, we had no volunteers coming. So um, it's been very tough. Um, it's really, really tough. Our animals, we, we feed them all. They, they don't hunt for themselves. And um, you know, each animal eats about five kilograms of meat a day. And uh, they don't watch the news. You know, they don't understand COVID. They, <laughs> they, don't, they don't do COVID or anything else. Um, but, you know, we are very fortunate still. Somehow we did manage. Our animals look very good. They're very healthy. We have absolutely no problems. And, uh, you know, our, our, um, our following has been very good. Salesforce has been very good. Their employees in supporting us. Um, we've just started a, a give and gain campaign also now, Ubuntu Wildlife Sanctuary, and, um, which we are also asking, you know, people just to, you know, we are, we are planning to raise money just to keep us, you know, for sure, you know, making sure we have enough funds for the next three months. Amazing. I mean, I think after I think we're all planning our trips in advance. I planned a trip to Greece, uh, which I don't think is going to happen at this stage in the summer. But I think there's going to be a resurgence, and it's a really great way for companies to, you know, to to for to think about giving back. It's a great program that Salesforce are doing. So um, yeah, I can see that being very something we could all be keen on doing, and, and especially bringing people to South Africa. I know you and I share a passion for bringing people to South Africa, showing them what a wonderful, amazing country it is. So uh, this is a, something special to do, um, really a, quite an experience. Where can people um, reach out to you, uh, Lucas? How can you get in touch? If I can just add to our, um, if I can just add uh, to that, James, we don't, you know, with our volunteer program for, for Salesforce, we don't only do the animals. We've also got social outreach programs. Like we've adopted, a, we've adopted a primary school, and like for instance, again with the guys from Salesforce, they always, you know, we we all they always bring either toys or soccer balls or footballs, or I mean, simple things like uh, stationery and things like that, you know. And then one day they spend with the school, and they they actually they physically spend time in the school with the kids in a, in, a, in a disadvantaged area. We have a group of grandmothers, you know, they, it's a group that they, they have to look after quite a few families. And, you know, these guys do knitting work and they do a lot of hand work. And, um, we also spend with them one morning to hear, you know, their stories and the volunteers work with them. So we do have also connected to this. We have a, um, a social outreach program also. Amazing. It's really inspiring. It's fantastic, Lucas. So how can, how can people reach out to you where they can get in contact with it? Can they find out more? You know, obviously, people can go to our website. We have our website, um, uh, Ubuntu Wildlife website. You know, people can go and on to Give and Gain. They will see our campaign there. And yeah, they can make contact, you know. And we would love to hear from companies that want to maybe think of something similar like this. And, uh, you know, we could set up, uh, we could set up a, a volunteer program for them. It is massively rewarding, you know. I mean, we had, we had some of Salesforce people that came back four times. Okay. You know, so it is really, it's a very rewarding thing. You know, it's always so funny. You find you have somebody coming from Dublin or London 
they haven't even camped one day in their life, you know. So we take them right into the middle of the bush. Um, on the first day and the second day, they shower three times a day. But on the second last day, before they have to get on the plane, we have to ask them to please go and shower and just clean yourself up. Um, you know, you smell like the bush, you look like the bush. <laughs> well, as long as you give them a couple of days in uh, Fanshuk on the way out to reacclimatize, I think they'll be okay. <laughs> you know, and that's and that's what's interesting now with our new premises. You know, we are in the Eastern Cape, um, you know, the Western Cape, sorry. And, uh, you know, we have some very, very good um, uh, activities around here. So, and because that's what people normally did, you know, they didn't only, I mean, South Africa is a far way to travel for one week. So I would say 90% of, our, of the people that came, they, they, they were here for about three weeks. And then we would have helped them, you know, to, um, depends on the people's personal preferences. Would you like to go to the wine estates? Would you like to go on safaris? And, um, you know, now we are in the, in the Western Cape where all of those things are happening. So we can definitely help the people assist them with extended tours and everything. Great. Well, listen, I want to wrap it up now. I just want to say thanks very much for coming on the podcast. It's been fascinating in listening to you. I also want to thank Eamon O'Sullivan, who's promoting regular guests for the um, podcast now at this stage. So thanks, Eamon. You're a star. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, you can reach out to Lucas. You can find him at point2wellnife.com uh, is the website. And um, we'll, until the next time, we'll see you again. Bye-bye. So that wraps it up for another episode of the Gross Profit Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing and leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcasts.